0: Welcome to Roll With Adventure, a Dungeons & Dragons 5th edition podcast that transports you through the magic of imagination. From our world to the far-off world of Ibris, a land full of heroes and villains, the evil and the divine, monsters and miracles, and of course, magic. We are delighted to bring you this adventure from our imagination to your ears. If you like what you hear... Please subscribe for future episodes and follow us on social media. If you want to learn more about us and this podcast, please visit us at RollWithAdventure.com. And now let's listen as our heroes, Roll with Adventure.
1: Hello and welcome to Roll with Adventure. This session's campaign is of salt and blood. My name is Cass, and I am the Dungeon Master for this ragtag band of heroes. Today, our journey into this tale of adventure, intrigue, secrets, and magic across the world of Ibris continues. This session begins amidst the chaos of the 15th and 16th of Altor, in the year 1069 PR, as our heroes and the other penal colonists make preparations to depart from Merswal forever. Now, before we dive right in, let's meet our band of heroes. To decide the order of introduction, let's roll player initiative, not character. And remember, here, we roll with adventure. So, what intelligent delight, or mind-numbing tale, have you to share with us, tonight?
2: So I'll go first, because I always like revealing this fact, and it's kind of a Christmas fact, but it's morbid because of the context. But we'll see what everyone thinks. Uh, so one fact that I always love telling people, because it's surprising a lot of people don't know, is that during World War World War I, uh, during around Christmas time, there was actually a ceasefire from both sides. Um, some lasted pretty much just Christmas Day, but some of the ceasefires along the trenches between the French and German soldiers lasted up to two weeks after Christmas. And what makes it interesting is it's the only time in, or at least modern war, if you consider it, I don't know about ancient times, I haven't looked at that. But from what I remember, it's the only time in modern history in a war where both sides not only had a ceasefire for a holiday, but they also came into no man's land, which was a big deal back, which was a big deal because these soldiers have been pointing machine guns at each other for Months beforehand, and anyone that stepped into no man's land got killed. But there were actually German soldiers and French soldiers and some British soldiers who were on the French lines that actually, you know, they played games. They shared booze. They shared uh, cigarettes, conversations for the ones that could speak German or French and vice versa. And it was very civil, despite the context of it being World War One, <laughs> where everyone was killing each other on a daily basis. And it even ended very civilly where both commanders of the French and German troops shot a pistol in the air to actually signal that at the end of Christmas Day that the truce was done. And some lines, like I said, didn't actually continue fighting for up to two weeks. Most of them were about three days, and they started shooting each other again. But and my Christmas fact. Uh, oh, sorry. And I'll give myself kind. of because it's interesting, but also morbid.
3: I would like to share a fact that I think we are all going to find very useful in the coming sessions. I always have a hard time knowing the difference between port and starboard. And today I learned how we came to use the terms port and starboard. So we'll start with starboard, because I think it's the easiest one. Initially, when we were using boats like simple dugout canoes, people would paddle. And generally, people's dominant hand is their right hand. And so paddling would happen on the right hand side. And as they developed into larger vessels, steering paddles became larger and then developed into like a big bladed oar that was permanently fixed to the side of the ship. And the side of the ship, not the back of the ship, like a normal rudder. Anyway, so they put it on the right hand side because that's generally where the right hand people were paddling. And this rudder was known as the steerboard in Anglo Saxon. Probably I'm I'm mispronouncing it. Um and then it developed into a medieval thing called the sternpost. Anyway, the word stairboard is as you can probably already hear, the origin of the word starboard. So the right-hand side, the side that people would paddle on with their dominant hands, is the starboard side. So right is starboard. Okay. And then port... Well, because you've got this, like, paddle affixed to the right-hand side of your ship, the thought is that people wouldn't have docked up against that side, because they probably would have damaged the paddle. So the other side is the side where the, like, the ship would be up against the dock, and that's where it would be loaded. And that's, like, the the port side, because you're on the... Anyway... Um, yeah, so I think that's worth a plus two, because I feel like now I'm going to remember the difference between port and starboard and, and I feel good about it. I hope I've helped you too. I should say that apparently, according to this thing that I read, that it's like the loading port on the ship is on the port side. So that maybe is also helpful.
4: Well, we all love Christmas jingles, Christmas songs, Christmas tales of fun. And one of the most ravishing and wonderful songs to sing is the 12 days of Christmas. And I won't beguile you with all the 12 days, but needless to say, if one were attempt to gift the 12 days of Christmas today, the cost would be astronomical. Hiring people at a fair wage with benefits and various other things would easily cost someone over $300,000 a year. And also to own land and milk cattle would be extremely egregious in price, seeing how inflation and various other costs of land has gone up. But my favorite fact is the 12 swans would cost over $6,500. In total, you could probably spend close to 500000 or maybe 750000 in order to give these lavish gifts. Maybe just go with the gift card. So I'm going to take a plus two, because I actually had to figure
0: out all that on my own. And that's it. That's cool. For my Christmas fact, this week I learned that Christmas cookies go bad much more quickly if you leave them by the window. And I learned this having to have cookies for over 800 people. So... I will be taking a minus one on my modifier. Um, for... Or minus two, rather, because I think this is worthy. Because cookies should not have gone stale.
5: Interesting. Well, that sounds like a tragedy. I'm so sorry you lost all of your Christmas cookies.
0: Not all, just many.
5: Well, at least it wasn't all. I learned that there's a a seabird called the Sooty Turn. Interesting. And they can sleep while they fly, and they can spend years, apparently almost never visiting any land at all, except to have babies. Um, but they are also not water resistant, and sometimes they just end up in the water, and that's that is the end. So they are like super well adapted to being in the air and spend almost all of their time above the ocean, but cannot get wet, or it's very bad. And that is really interesting to me. I would not have expected a bird to just, like, almost entirely live in the air. I mean, I guess it makes some sense, but anyway, I think I'm going to take a plus one because I think it's interesting.
1: That is crazy.
5: Right? The first thing I read about it was like, yeah, they can stay in the air for like three to five years and i was like that seems wrong and i couldn't really find anything that said exactly that but they spend almost their whole lives in the air i guess
1: noted and filed for future use let's see what you all roll
0: 13 for me
1: i got a 14
4: 15 i get a 12 16 oh yeah Hello, everyone. It's Carlos here, and I play Marcus Evander, a scout from the Tolerant Army, who apparently is quite
1: the ladies' man, unknowingly.
0: Hi, I'm Ellie. I'm
3: playing Maya Volta, a human cleric of Cain. And Maya is a little nervous, but also very excited to be starting her new life. And I don't just mean coming back from the dead. I also mean, like, going out again.
2: Hey, everyone. My name's Corey, and I play Kalina Floros, who is an ex-soldier in the Tyran army. And she is not sure what to think about the upcoming trip.
0: I'm Disco, and I play Alice, the radiant Genasi druid of the Half Moon Circle, who is a walking, talking, apparently, perhaps sailing, magic mirror.
5: Hi, everybody, I'm Emmy. I'm playing Sylvie Antaeus. She's a half elf monk, and she doesn't have the best history on boats, so we're gonna do our best and hope that we don't fall overboard.
1: Now that everyone has introduced themselves, let's get this adventure rolling. And remember, here we roll with adventure. Home. Often defined as a place of dwelling in which one finds belonging, be it familial or personal. For many, home is where they live all their life. For others, it is a path or vehicle. And yet for others, it is people or a few select belongings. So how much does where you live change a person? How much is location tied to identity? How much does it shape the fleeting lives of mortals? Some people will do everything they can to live in certain places, to reap the opportunities and rewards they offer, while others? Others would trade the world to avoid it. The 15th of Altor dawned bright one fine wireloom in the year 1069 PR. But before the light of soul had even dawned, our heroes had already awakened, feeling thoughtful and somber. Thoughts and memories tumble about your minds like marbles in a children's game. But there is little time for you to think as you are thrown into your last day on Merstwall. You are consumed with your final preparations, frantically rushing about to finish packing your things, to ensure all is left in order, to haggle and find items you so desperately think you will need to survive the journey ahead, and to tie up loose ends. At mid-morning, a guard appears, seeking Alice's sheep. Alice is allowed to gather the sheep and settle them onto the Dauntless, but he is not allowed to wander and is watched constantly. The ship isn't as unfamiliar to him as it would be to the rest of your party, seeing as he had the chance to explore as a cat a few days ago, though it may seem like a lifetime, given your experiences within Caligos Manor. Throughout the day, you are all interrupted by well-wishers, whose visits are welcome, but sad. Some friends, not accompanying you, express their hopes that they will be on the next ship, and will see you, and of course earn their freedom, soon. But you can tell that there are those who think the trip is a death sentence devised by the warden, one to keep the remaining colonists in check, and to depopulate the island to make way for new prisoners. For any of you who have business in town, you notice an increased presence of guards almost everywhere. The colonists around you speak in subdued voices, and no one makes sudden movements. You hear that several guards are posted, at the bridge and anywhere, that someone might be able to cross the river. It seems the warden is determined not to have anyone disappear into the forests near the mist wall. Can you each provide me with a brief description of one thing you did that was important to your preparations before setting sail? Would anyone like to start?
3: Maya was very careful to get certain items, and she's probably repacked and packed her bags four times, you know, maybe five trying to find the like optimal weight distribution, but also just that kind of nervous tension as you wait for the momentous occasion to arrive and, you know, seeing, touching each item that she knows she wants to bring with her is reassuring to her. Like, yes, okay, I did get this. I didn't forget it. Yep. Look, look at me putting it in my bag. It's in my bag now. I know I put it there. Uh, It's gonna go with me. Because it's very uprooting to be shipped off to Atsakan. And this is, like, I mean, we were all uprooted to be shipped off to Merstwall. But this is different, because this time there's hope associated with it. And... When you're being shipped off to prison, yes, it's terrible, but at the same time, you know, like, room, board, all that kind of stuff is sort of looked after for you. And while you don't want to go, it's not like you need to do do a lot to prepare to make sure that you didn't just die by accident. So for this, Maya's like, okay, yeah, now I got this thing. All right, yes, okay, good. I've got that. Yeah, okay. We're not going to die. We're going to be prepared.
2: Mm, comparatively, Kalina's aren't quite so... Frantic. She's used to deployments more in a forest, so she's treating this as, you know, kind of going off to war. Uh, so she's trying to keep her things simple. Uh, she would definitely try, she was trying to procure a cloak, not knowing if it's going to be cold, hot, wet, dry, uh, a short bow, hopefully for hunting or defense, if they would let her or not, and then she'd be a little irritated that she could get it. Other than that, just making sure she has some basic food and her another knife. She also frantically tried to get her any orders for leather working fixes finished and out of the way. Definitely in a rush and probably didn't get them all done as it takes time and the warden and being the wardens, forcing everyone to be give the tithe or get ready or make sure the report. And she's been very on edge uh, seeing all of the guards posted since it's much heavier, more fisted. Uh, But she's trying to look at them, size them up, and she's still still trying to see uh, how many of them are coming on the ship and how many of them look like they may be battle-hardened to any degree. Uh, She is of the camp that this is a suicide mission because no one knows what's on the other side of the wall.
5: Well, meanwhile, Sylvia's positive this is not a suicide mission, because she talked to the god of death, well, a representative, and he, they gave her a task, so obviously there is something over there, and we've got work to do. Um, I think one of the things that Sylvie has done is pruned many of the rose bushes that she and... Everyone tends around the house and has dried as many of them as possible because she didn't think she could uproot a whole rose bush and take it with her. She thought probably that wouldn't be allowed. Well, she voiced the opinion, and then probably Maya told her they probably wouldn't let her do that. So she's got just stacks of dried roses that she's put in every nook and cranny that she could possibly fit them in.
0: Alice is very used to his organized workshop for the tailoring he does. And while there was a lot of panic in attempting to uproot his system that he's created, there was also a joy in reorganizing it into a traveling system. So he's gathered his thread, categorized by color. He has all of his needles together, including the big ones, And he also has spent time finishing the pieces that he had been working on for everyone's comfort. There, his familiar probably cried at him a few times, as you can hear. And he's gathered um, his belongings, categorizing them uh, and organizing them in in his pack to go, while also doing his best to run his sheep through their drills for coming together and moving in different formations for travel. So... That is what Alice has been doing. Marcus
4: would be used to being shipped off and preparing to go places with minimal needs, just like Kalina would. He would make sure to replace the scarf that he laid down for his daughter's memorial. He would make sure he would have his necessary ingredients in terms of supplies for survival, and think the last thing he would do would be collect flowers and drop them off at Amelia's house secretly of course
1: the day passes by in a blur and knowing that you will be awoken in the night you each retire early to dreamless sleeps Your sleep has been light thanks to a combination of anxiety and anticipation. It is no surprise to you that the knock at your door, sounding obscenely loud in the early hours of the morning, wakes you almost instantly. The first one of you to arrive at the door and open it find two guards waiting. With quiet efficiency, the rest of you rise, dress, and grab everything you prepared the day before. Sylvie carries only her breakfast. Bundles of her belongings are distributed amongst the rest of you, as she is still recovering from the dubious hospitality of the warden. Each of those bundles smells beautifully like roses. Laden down with your belongings and the breakfast you prepared to take with you, with a last look to ensure none of you have forgotten anything, you file out and close the door behind you. The sound of the closing door seems too loud, and you almost feel it in your chest. A note of finality. This chapter of your life. Closing. From the position of the moons, you can see it is several hours till dawn. The air is still damp with the dew of the night. When you reach the road, as if all thinking the same thing, you pause and turn to look at your home. The home of the five of you built together after serving your prison sentence. You've lived here three years. And as you look, some of the happiest memories come back to you. Will you each please share one happy memory that flashes through your character's mind? Maya, why don't you start us out?
3: I think in, like, if this were cinematic, in Maya's mind she'd be seeing the land as it was the first time that she saw it before it had been cleared, before we'd built our house. And very quickly, you know, she'd see the land cleared, then, you know, the frame up, and then, you know, the walls up and the windows in in the original house before we'd expanded it to have the two separate bedrooms when we'd all slept in the same room. And I think she would remember the house the way that it was then, before the expansion, because even though the expansion gave us more room, more privacy, more, uh, you know, just really showed how well we were doing, that unlike probably many other colonists we could afford to expand the house i think she really liked that time when we were all in one room together safe um just the companionship not being alone and i think she'd be thinking about well yeah that's what she'd be remembering she would be remembering the the house the way that it was, with the one room and all the the blood, sweat, and tears that went into building it. I think Sylvie's
5: memory would be fairly similar to Maya's. A lot of seeing the house come together and all of those long nights and the hard work. And then one of the first nights where we all just were together in a house that we built with our own hands... And we were all exhausted, but we were so happy. And we had a place that felt like it was ours. After years of being prisoners, it was really freeing, even though we were still, you know, technically prisoners.
2: Kalina's would be right as she got out of the prison, not knowing what the next step would be until Maya was the one that dragged or threw the idea of why don't the five of us make a house together that was probably that is when Kalina felt the happiest because then she felt part of something again
4: Marcus would look and be flooded with the wonderful memories of wonderful cool summer nights brisk fall evenings time spent together a cup of tea here and there Cooked meals, made from friendship and love, and even still, this house being something that he built or helped build, as his home was always provided for by someone else. And he looks somberly
0: as it's time for a new adventure. Alice would think of the first birthday party that he was ever thrown in this house, um, ever. Uh, Not just in this house. The first birthday party he ever had, uh, which was conducted by uh, Kalina, orchestrated by Kalina, rather. Because Alice never was given one in the over 800 years that he spent trapped in the mirror. and He didn't really know what was customary of it, but what he knew was that this was a sincere moment of family and he would remember all of his friends smiling faces as he was told to blow out a fire when he's much more used to blowing things up and he would remember the wish that he made on those flames that he blew out and that was that he would always find a home in this group of People thrown together by circumstance. And he hopes that that wish continues, even though it might not be in this place, filled with so many memories.
1: Now your land and your home are dark. Empty. You harvested your crops earlier and the sheep were taken to the boat yesterday, leaving your fields looking Desolate. And the home, well. You are no longer there, and everything you need or value is carried on your backs. At a growl from your guards, you start on your way again. You follow silently, pausing at nearly every farm on your road, where more colonists, escorted by more guards, like you are. Join the group bound for the dauntless. When you reach town, you see other groups approaching and ahead of you. The sound of footsteps, rustling fabric, and rattling possessions are heard. But it seems that, like you, no one is in the mood for talking. The only voices you hear are the occasional barked orders of the town guard. As you near the docks, there are subtle changes in the sounds and smells around you. You hear voices carrying over the water, shouted orders and instructions, even the occasional laugh or snatch of song. You hear the water lapping against the dock and the ship, You smell seaweed, and tar, and salt. And then you see the Dauntless looming before you. Tall against the skyline, her masts reaching up to the moons, her rigging silhouetted like strange spiderwebs, and her few twinkling lights like stars. What goes through your head as the Dauntless comes into view? What does this moment mean for you?
3: For Maya, it's a it's a big risk, but for a big reward. We'll finally all be out from under the thumb of the warden and in Maya's opinion, out from under the thumb of Tal Ren. And we can be if we survive, whoever whatever it is that we want to be, we can lead whatever lives we can carve out for ourselves, there's... The only limit is what we can achieve for ourselves. We're not bound by the limitations of the colony anymore. And we don't, won't have to be afraid of the warden and the warden's lackeys. And yeah, I think it's... She's nervous about going through the mist wall and what we might find on Atsakan and the dangers that await. But at the same time, who knows what kind of lives we could lead.
4: Marcus would feel that the realization of the reality of the situation literally coming into view and his arm where uh, the tattoo from the governor itches... As if someone's watching him.
0: Alice would see freedom, uh, more freedom than he ever thought possible, which is the same feeling that he had gotten when he arrived at the prison even. And the same feeling when he was released from the prison into the penal colony. And yet again, an opportunity that he never, ever thought possible in front of him to be his own person. And he will pet his collar which is a furry collar that is actually as familiar, but it just looks like the collar of his cloak. And smile.
5: Sylvie's fairly excited to get on a big boat and see what's across the ocean. She's been given all of these big visions. And she's excited to go and explore a whole new, a whole new place with all of her friends. She's also not unaware of the fact that it is going to be dangerous. And so she is a little bit worried for everyone, but she's mostly excited.
2: Lena is on edge. Um, she's getting flashbacks of new recruits in Orr Squirrel. She feels like they're marching off to battle. She's looking left and right at everyone and wondering how many are going to die. While also trying to keep her composure to not let anyone know she's that nervous. Uh, but all she can see is the force of squirrel right now. As she just tries to stay in the motion.
1: Those thoughts shoot through your mind. As you are marched along the dock in single file with the other colonists, everyone moves slowly now, and you eat your breakfast as you wait. It seems each colonist is being checked before being boarded. As you get closer to the gangplank, you see Nycris, captain of the guard, standing with Mykolos, and a banner of the Grand Republic of Tal Ren. A woman approaches, her body language proclaiming her nervousness, but many of the colonists are nervous. Nycris motions her towards the banner, and she reaches out and touches it as she says her name. As she stands there, you see her grow taller and her hair change color. Mikulosa's expression stays wooden as Nycris smirks at her, barks an order, and summons two guards who materialize out of the darkness from somewhere further down the dock. The woman attempts to make a break for it, but is apprehended with a struggle, and dragged past you, pleading. "'Selena is pregnant! You can't take her! Please, let me go in her place!' Please! Meanwhile, Nycris is shouting orders after the guards for them to find the missing passenger and bring her to the ship. When you reach the gangplank, you are asked to touch the banner and state your name. Mikalos consults his checklist as you state your name, and after a pause, while Nycris looks at you carefully, your name is checked off the list and you are directed to board the Dauntless. As you crest the gangplank, you survey the deck of the Dauntless from the port side of the ship. The deck is a hive of disciplined activity. To the aft, you see the warden speaking with a woman as they watch the activities on the deck. Ahead of you... You see your fellow colonists being guided across the deck amidst the hurried activity of the sailors. The sailors all but ignore you as they carry out their tasks. In the faint morning light, it is hard to make out the details of their uniform. The mainmast rises above you like an incredibly tall tree with improbably few branches. You have little time to take in the sights, though, as you are motioned along across the deck. The colonists who have boarded ahead of you are already making their ways towards a doorway in the bow of the ship. The narrow door leads down a steep, narrow set of well-worn wooden steps. As you descend, a strange smell assaults you. Equal part delicious aromas of cooked food and the foul odor of confined animals. As you reach the bottom of the stairs, you find a large room that seems to take up nearly the entire ship. You are, as you will later learn, now on the Orlop deck. There are few enough colonists now that you can see well, but you imagine when everyone has arrived it will be quite crowded. You note clusters of hanging rope nets dangling around the outside of the room, and multiple hooks in the ceiling, which is low enough that the taller members of your party have to stoop to avoid hitting their heads. To fore and port are two doors leading into what must be small rooms. Aft, you see several long sets of wooden tables and benches. The dining area is flanked by wooden cubes with doors inset, which look exactly like the staircase you have just descended. An armed guard stands at the starboard stair, wearing the uniform of the ship's company. Her uniform looks crisp, and formal, the vibrant green facings shining brightly against the blue woolen weave. A sailor leans casually against the other door, preventing access. Against the aft wall is another door, from which as you draw nearer the smell of food emanates. In the center of the room is a large, raised rectangle of wood, matching an identical one set in the ceiling above you. As you wait as the ship slowly fills with the remaining colonists, the two doors at the far end of the room are blocked, and the steady stream of colonists prevent anyone from returning to the fresh air of the main deck. Through silent but nearly unanimous consensus, the benches are left for the colonists who need to sit, particularly the elderly and pregnant who have inexplicably been chosen for the voyage. What are you thinking about as you wait? Is there anything you want to say to anyone?
3: Maya is looking around herself and probably trying to make small talk. Absolutely anything to distract herself. If anybody's looking at Maya's body language, they'll notice that her fists are clenched, her jaw is tight, her... Her, like, just everything about her looks very uncomfortable. She, she's really been trying not to think about the sailing aspect of this, even though it's, you know, kind of an integral part of getting to Atsakan. She's been really trying to focus on being on Atsakan. She hates ships so much. And in the prison, she, after... Many times out on the fishing boats, she finally kind of got used to them, but she sure doesn't love them. And now we're below decks, trapped below decks, like we were when we were brought to Merstwall. And probably like Maya was before she was shipwrecked as a child. And so she's just really, really trying hard not to... Not to think about it. Like, this is just a normal room. There's nothing nothing ship-like about this at all. Hello, how are you doing? Did you have, did you enjoy breakfast? Um, just any kind of small talk. Anybody that will talk to her.
2: It would have taken Kalina a minute to notice that Maya was still nervous about ships. Uh, but when she finally noticed, she'd walk up to her and be like, does this remind us when we first met?
3: Yeah, um, really trying not to think about that. So, uh... Uh, Kalina, have you ever been in love?
2: Uh, no. Oh. never really had time for that.
3: Hmm. Me either. Uh, how do you think you do it? Like, f- fall in love?
2: <laughs> Kalina, like, nervously shrugs, is like, uh, I would assume it's just. happens?
3: Oh. So it's not like, uh,. A... You do this and then that and then, 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 then it happens. It's like just a... If it happens, it happens and it's... <laughs>
2: well, what what's with the whole sudden interest in love? Is there someone you, you like? Someone like you?
3: Yes. Yes. Uh, um... Somebody proposed to me. I don't really know what to do about it. I mean, obviously I told them... Then I, I wasn't going to marry them until I knew them better. But I don't really know.
4: Is Marcus around?
1: <laughs> Unless you have internally decided that you separated a bit as a group while you people were being shuffled down here. You all entered into the ship. At, you came onto the ship at the same time. One by one. And that have been put down into the same area so you probably have gravitated closer to each other,
4: okay well at, at hearing of this, Marcus is going to turn to Maya and say, um, you could have like uh, mentioned that it probably is convenient or uh, prudent information to you know people saying I got engaged, you." got proposed you literally got proposed to what's this person like you need to give me the details
3: um well i i what
2: also how long have you known him
3: oh i mean
4: he has he taken you on a date does he bought dinner
5: yeah did he bring you flowers or um
4: did he do you know his last name
3: Oh my gosh, so many questions and Maya like you can see her visibly like not like she's untensing. <laughs> this is very distracting. It's absolutely excellent. Um okay. Uh so the the first the first question was
1: a ripple travels through the crowd as your fellow colonists pull away from the stairs in a hushed gasp. Uh those near the stairs fall silent. How tall are each of you? 6'1".
2: one. Five. I think claims like 5'7", but I don't remember.
3: I'm also 5'7". Or Maya is. I'm not, actually.
5: I believe Sylvie's 5'8", because she's an inch taller than Maya, I'm pretty
3: sure. I think that sounds right.
1: Sylvie and Marcus, you will both see this luscious has descended the stairs his face is impassive and he seems to be ignoring the people around him he's not wearing the uniform you're used to seeing him in in fact he is dressed in plain hard-wearing clothes like the rest of you and he carries a large pack on his back He stands against a corner between the two forward doors and the colonists are avoiding him like the plague.
5: Huh.
1: I wonder what that's about.
5: What is it? Sylvie almost blurts out and then looks at Kalina and looks at Marcus and looks at Kalina and she doesn't know if she should say anything. So she doesn't say anything.
6: Aren't you like dating him?
5: (laughs) We're not. No, no. Who? What? No!
4: (laughs) Is it... Didn't y'all, like, go on a date or something?
5: Wait, no, he literally... He just gave me water before I... I, He was nice to me. I... I, No, we're not dating.
4: That does not count as a date. But was it, like, suggestive water? Like, did he try to... Like, was it meant for something?
5: I mean, I think he was just trying to keep me from dying, but...
4: What? You know, the old trick in the book. You give them some water and then they fall over for you. That's really...
5: Sylvie really does want to go say thank you to him, but doesn't think that it's maybe the best time.
2: Why are you guys talking about what Luscious did with Sylvie in the furnace?
3: Yeah, what's going on?
2: At this point, Clayton isn't trying to find a way to look, but they're just trying to see what's going on.
4: Uh, did you not, did you not see him? Did you not?
3: Who? See who?
4: L- luscious.
3: <gasps> what?
4: He's come for Sylvie.
5: He, I think he's just coming with us. I don't think it's, I don't think.
4: I know what you told him.
5: <laughs> Listen, Marcus, you're the one that married the warden. I don't know what you want from me.
4: No, nah, hey, hey now, that ain't funny. That is not funny. I'm. I get nervous in crowds. I'm sorry. I'm trying to get my mind off of things. I apologize.
1: There are going to be some very weird rumors from the people that have been listening to your conversation. Just informing you that now.
2: is like, what do you mean, Washes is on the ship? Why is he on the ship? Why is he here? I don't. I don't know. He just is.
3: Maybe
4: he's not. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
3: Oh um, no, it's okay, Marcus. I. I was just going to say maybe he's just here to, you know, check that we're all here, report back to the warden, uh, you know, do some last minute spying and freaking us all out so that we behave when they send the new colonists. You know, I really don't think he's not, he's not that bad. I don't, you, everybody's
5: just being over, overreactive, I think.
4: But he's, he's not wearing his normal stuff, though. He's not wearing his uniform. He's. Dressed in civilian clothing.
3: Oh. Okay, that does seem strange.
0: There is even more of a reason that he's being a spy, then.
2: Where's the warden? Is the warden down here?
1: As you glance about the room, trying to see if the warden is down here, you think that the room has become uncomfortably crowded. And as these thoughts, as this concern about the warden, as this concern about Luscious, and as you forget Maya's revelation in this brief moment, the door to the stairwell shuts with a loud slam, and the small amount of natural light that filtered down is completely snuffed out, leaving you in lamplight. The last to descend was a sailor who now stands blocking this door, too. After several moments of tense waiting, the crowd of colonists has become somewhat silent. Since Luscious had joined you. And now something changes. It is subtle at first, but becomes more pronounced. You had become used to the creaking of the ship. But it gradually becomes louder, and as it does, you feel more and more movement beneath your feet. You hear muffled shouting from above, and the crew guarding the door seems to take notice of the sound. At first, the movement is just a gentle tilt, which becomes more pronounced. You hear some whispers. Some quietly whispered words of comfort, and a few sharp exclamations of dismay, which are swiftly followed by the smell of vomit. You are left here for many minutes, how many, you cannot be sure. What do you think, or do, what do you talk about, in the lamplight?
5: Are we moving? Is it happening?
1: Kalina would have uh, grabbed
2: Maya's hand and kind of like tried to reassure her that it's okay. From Similar to the last time that they both rode on to Merswall in a ship.
3: Maya would definitely be clinging to whichever of her companions is closest. Just she hates this so much.
4: Marcus will kind of lean over to Alice and say... Alice, did you bring your
6: snake thing? Did I bring my what? Your snake thing, your your companion, your companion, your snake worm, your snake scarf thing—the
0: familiar that is bonded to my eternal prison. Well, that's a
6: good way of putting that. it. I'm, I, I know. I'm sorry. That sounds so depressing now when you put it that way. No, it's it's not. It's just how it is. Oh, well, that doesn't mean it's not depressing still, but I think that, uh, is it, like, on you right now?
0: Alice will pet his collar to kind of infer with a wink, a a clear wink. Could I could I
6: pet
4: your, your familiar?
0: Oh, yes. Will I feel it? Okay. Yes, yes.
4: I'm just gonna reach out slowly and kind of give a pat, pat.
0: He doubles for support uh, during troubling times.
6: It's good that you can bring these on the ship. Then a support animal really saves on money.
0: Yes, it's very easy. <laughs> Try. I know he didn't even need a ticket or anything.
6: It's amazing. And people bring horses and all these different things on. They don't have really to pay any tax on it. And. I'm glad that you're able to bring your thing with us. That's that's nice. Really. You know,
0: Marcus, I have to tell you, I think even if I tried to leave him behind, it wouldn't work. Yeah,
6: my ex-mother in law was like that too. <laughs> that's a joke. You had a familiar once. Oh, just a joke, okay. Yeah, just it's just a joke sorry. I'm awkward. And crowds, I'm
0: sorry. Well, Marcus, your your jokes are aiding me through this process, so many thanks, and feel free to pet my collar whenever you are in need. Okay, thank you.
2: Yeah,
5: Sylvia, I think we are moving. Do you think they're going to make us stay down here the whole time? It's really cramped.
2: And dark. I can't barely see anything. I would have assumed they would have at least let us get... Are we even going to have
5: any place to sleep? I don't know. Are we going to have to sleep out here in the hallway?
2: I'm not letting anyone sleep on top of me. Or at least anyone I don't know. And she's looking side to side at all the people. This is a lot of people to try and f- lay down in this room. Then Clayton will look at Maya and try and see what how she's doing.
3: Maya is about to make a terrible joke. Well, if we all try to lay down, it'll be really snugly. and seeing Sylvia's a boyfriend, and I've been proposed to, and Marcus is getting married, and maybe, maybe you and Alice will meet someone.
0: I've no desire to entangle myself with anyone else's destiny in that way, but thank you, dear.
2: And I'm a bit more concerned about us staying alive first.
0: I guess this
4: is a good time to, as any, to mention, um, I'm, I'm not married to the warden, but I kinda have a girlfriend.
3: Wait, Marcus. What? You have a girlfriend? You do?
4: It's kind of, it's hard, it's, we have, there's no really names on it yet, um.
3: Is she here? Well, is she here? Do we know her?
4: No, she's, no, uh, well, she's Amelia. She's the uh, the barkeep, the davern.
5: Wait, you left her behind and you didn't even tell us about her until we were here?
3: Wait, why didn't we smuggle her on the ship?
4: Well, there were more important things to, to do, like, you know, mourn the loss of my, my daughter. That was probably more important than trying to talk about my relational matters.
3: But the future...
4: All well, the features. Well, we can come back. I mean, I'm sure we can. I could easily have dressed her
0: as a sheep and brought her on board. That sounds like a bad idea.
3: <laughs> oh, Cass! I wish you were unmuted. That cackle was amazing.
0: We heard it. I'm on
6: a roll of that, folks.
3: Okay, Marcus. Then look, if you if you actually have a girlfriend, because I was just teasing you and Sylvie, then like. How do you, how do you know? Like, how does it start? And, and like, what do you, what do you, what are you supposed to do?
4: Well, it's, I don't want to say it is my, she is my girlfriend. It's not like, it's not like I could change my relationship status. Like, it's, you know, just like that, it takes two to, two to waltz. So they say, but, uh, I kind of just told her how I felt and she didn't like deny me she didn't say anything other than we just kind of talked and danced a little and but like i did she didn't say yes we're now a couple i'm just i'm making assumptions but kind of i don't know women are confusing It just don't make don't make no sense but anyway oh, we are well kind of yeah you 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 kind of say one thing, and you really mean it, another thing. But you really want us to figure out what you really want, and you tell us it's fine when it's not really fine. And I do. Well, not you specifically, but you know, sometimes, you know, especially with me, I can't, I can't talk about my feelings that well, and things like that. You know, so
3: wait, am I supposed to say one thing and mean a different thing? Is that how it works?
4: No, that's. That's not, that's like, no, it's like, okay, so here's an example. Let's say that Lashus and Sylvie are together. And, you know, they're out and they're looking around town and, and, you know, Lashus says, Hey, I really want to go to the, the tavern. And, you know, Sylvie says, well, that's fine. We can go to the tavern. No, or how will we go to that, uh, fish place by the sea? And... <laughs> Luscious says, are you sure uh, we can go to the tavern? And Sylvie says, yeah, that we can go to the tavern. That's fine. She doesn't really mean that. She w- really wants to go to that fish place, but she wants to make <laughs> Am I making sense?
5: Well, that, hey, first of all, I don't, we're not together. And if I said it was fine to go to the tavern, then I would have meant that it was fine to go to the tavern.
4: But, you know, this is after a time where Luscious hasn't taken out. The the chamber pot, you asked him to do it three times. He still hasn't done it. And you're you're just really mad at him. And then you bring up the thing he did like three months ago. Maybe I just had a really bad marriage. Yeah, that's what it is. I don't know.
5: Yeah, are you okay?
4: Well, I'm going through some emotional things right now, as we all are. Plus, I'm really awkward in clouds.
2: (laughs) Have I mentioned that? Maybe you should just not... Promise to do things that you can't do. That, that might help. But you know, sometimes
4: after a long day of work, you know, you're hunting and you're you know torturing people and going in their minds, you know, like
2: you just forget. Celia gives Marcus a very, very death stare and's just like, "We've done the same thing. How can that be any harder?"
4: All right, I'm. I feel like I've I have uncovered some new information about my life. I'm going to decompress this information to better myself to carry on.
3: Okay, but you said you danced. Is that important? Do I need to dance with this guy or...
4: Well, if you like him, yeah, you you can dance with him. And, you know, if, if you... Does he have a job? Does he have an income?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah but... As Marcus asks these questions... The door you had originally descended through opens, and two uniformed figures descend. You can see by the lamplight that they look almost like children. In a childish but bold voice, the shorter figure addresses you. Cap'n wants you above deck. Shop now. No lulligaggin'. The sailor who had been standing at the foot of the stair begins to motion all of you back up the stairs. You patiently wait your turn, though patience is hard given your desire for fresh air. Since the seasickness has already set in, the air quality of the Orlop deck has decreased dramatically. At last, you have your turn in the fresh air. Dawn is breaking around you, and there's a golden quality to the light. You see the colonists are already standing in a tightly packed crowd, facing aft. A man with impossibly bushy eyebrows and light teal blue skin stands on an elevated portion of the deck. What you'll come to know as the quarter deck. His hands braced on the wooden railing. He surveys the sailors directly below him and the colonists behind them. When the last colonist is on deck, he disappears. You look around and notice some of your fellow colonists have placed themselves, or have been strategically placed, at the edges of the deck in case they haven't already lost everything they've eaten. You don't wait long before the man with bushy eyebrows reappears. Following behind him, a woman you recognize as the one the warden was speaking with earlier. Her uniform is similar to what you've seen the sailors wearing, but it contains gold braid and several more decorative green loops and whirls. You now get your first clear look at her face, albeit at a distance. She has a delicate heart-shaped face with a small, flat-bridged, upturned nose. Her rosebud mouth is downturned, and her upper lip has a small mole. She pauses to survey the crowd for a moment, before her mouth broadens into a large, toothy grin. As you know, we sail to the continent of Atsakan, a land of treasure and opportunity. But it is also a land of mystery and danger. But before we concern ourselves with that, We must first get there in one piece. Something you know well will not be an easy task. There are noises of agreement from the crew. But we made it there and back once, and we will do it again, because we are dauntless. The crew erupts into cheers around you. We have done what no other in history has accomplished, and we can do it again. We have the best ship, and the best crew on Ibris. The crew, the sound that they are making, the cacophony is almost deafening. And then it goes silent. I take this moment to pay homage to those we lost on our last voyage. Fortunately small as our butcher's bill was, given our impossible destination, still the price is high. The loss of any of our comrades hits us hard, so let us remember them, and in so doing strive to keep ourselves from the lady's book for a long time to come. And finally, to our guests, I say welcome. Welcome to the Dauntless. Welcome to the Adventure. And now, before we make our way into the deep waters... The captain raises her hand and makes the sign of the Triadrian in the air. She removes her hat and lowers her head to her chest in prayer. Into the hands of doom, I commend us. May his mercy send us fair winds and hold the vengeance of the sea in check. A murmur spreads through the crew as they follow suit, echoing her prayer. She returns her hat to her head, and with a broad grin, looks out at all of you. Colonists, stay for instructions from Mr. Croup. Crew, dismissed. About your duties. As Captain Melva Zarander steps away, and the crew disperses around you, the man with impossibly bushy eyebrows and slightly teal-blue skin steps forward to address you where the captain previously stood. This must be the first mate, Mr. Krupp. Welcome to the Dauntless, where everyone works hard for a fair share of the He looks as if he's about to say booty, or gold, or treasure, and then realizes you're not crew members. Adventure. You're a bunch of landlubbers now, but I swear by the end I'll have made sailors out of all of you. There's a great deal of work to be done on the ship, and only prisoners sail for free, and none of you are prisoners here. Work hard, and you'll find me an easy commander. But cross me, shirk your load, or cause any trouble, and you may not live to regret it. A ship you'll find is a small space, too small to tolerate any misbehavior whatsoever. Never forget that supplies and space are limited, and we will easily be better off without you. Now... About the work, three of you have been assigned specific duties, and the rest of you have been assigned to a work detail. There are two work details, one for each watch. For you lubbers, there are two watches on this boat, port and starboard. Each watch alternates in four-hour segments, except on the dog watch between 1,600 and 1,800 hours, when the segment is only two hours. The ship's bell keeps time for us all. One bell for each half hour of a watch. So after the first half hour of your watch, you'll hear one bell. And at the end of your watch, you'll hear eight. When you are not on watch, and you hear seven bells, you know you need to get ready for your watch. None of you will be late. I will select some from among you to lead your watches, and ensure you learn the ways of the ship. Now... I'll call the watches, and I want you to form into two groups. He gestures and states that on the port side, the port watch detail will gather, and on the starboard, the starboard watch detail will gather. As he calls names, he points back and forth, as everyone reorganizes themselves into the two different groups. You are relieved to find that you are all together, and some of your friends are even with you. Maya, Petros gives you a shy smile as he moves to your side of the ship, and Ambrose walks over and links arms with you, as he waits anxiously to see where Nicostratus will be placed, before he leans heavily on you, when Nicostratus is called for the other watch. Sylvie, Lena waves to you as she is placed on the starboard watch work detail. Kalina, you watch as Hector Evandris is luckily placed on the other watch, though you worry for some of your friends on the starboard watch that will be with him. A few of you might also note that Selena Antonella is also placed on your watch detail, the pregnant woman that a friend had attempted to impersonate earlier. As well as Luscious. Alice, your friend Erastos Plutarchos and his wife, Maya's friend Katrin Joska, are both placed on the starboard watch. Marcus, you receive a nod from your friend Talmar, as he joins your group with the port watch. And lastly, I will note that there is far less grumbling, and there are no outbursts from Delphling Longstaff, as he is placed with the starboard watch. As Mr. Croup finishes calling the names... Only three remain standing in the small, central area. Amado Irene and Zasha Vassal Aeneas, you are assigned to the galley. I will have someone escort you there. Silas Themistocles Michalakos, you are assigned to assist the ship's carpenter. As the first mate assigns their duties, Maya, you see Silas give you a look that you don't quite understand, and then he frowns at someone nearby. Possibly Petros who is standing behind you. The first mate clears his throat before continuing. In addition, in the event of a storm or attack or other emergency situation, three of you will immediately make your way to the surgeon to assist him. Hecuba Consolata, Lena Summers, and Maya Valletta. These are your assignments until I say otherwise. Each work detail will be assigned a midshipman, they will give you your orders and you will obey them. If you have any questions or concerns, you will raise them through your midshipmen. You will not bother the other officers on this ship. Midshipman Ferreria, Midshipman Giorgio, the first mate calls out over the din of the crew, and two figures come forward, a boy, perhaps sixteen summers old, and a girl, perhaps fourteen summers old. The boy's face is exceedingly covered with acne at this point in time, and the girl has clearly attempted to give herself a haircut, leaving her hair to stand up in places that it normally wouldn't. The first mate assigns the port watch detail, your watch detail to Midshipman Ferrera, The starboard watch is assigned to Midshipman Giorgio. Now, any of you with sailing experience, stay a moment longer that I may speak with you. The rest of you, go settle below decks until your Midshipman comes to collect you to begin your work. And with that, everyone will be ushered below deck once more. Are there any of you that believe that they have experience on ships and therefore should stay up for the next part?
5: Definitely not Maya. Yeah, not Sylvie either.
1: Nope, not Kalina.
0: Alice doesn't know how to work a ship, but he was often utilized by the nautical team during their work for the prison as a weather vane. So, I think he might stay? I have some experience with ships.
1: Not a whole lot. Do you think it's enough experience that you want to stay up? Can I
3: offer that Kalina and Maya and Sylvie are going below decks and Alice is staying above deck because Alice was useful as a weather vane
1: to the fishing ships that we were out on? One thing I should note, Alice, is that magic is not predictable on water. This is a phenomenon known as the Vengeance of the Sea. And so any time you were utilized as a weathervane was on land before the ships had departed. Or to check the weather while they were out there. But you have only ever cast from on land. So, Marcus?
4: Fake it till you make it. Yeah, Marcus will stay up.
1: With that... Some of you will go below deck, but Alice and Marcus, you will remain above deck, along with a few others. The first mate, he leaves you in the hands of the midshipmen. Ferreira comes towards you. He is the 16-year-old, or looks to be maybe 16, with short brown hair and a very horrible case of acne at the moment his voice sometimes warbles a little bit and he will ask you both as he goes through about your time on ships and about what you know about their working and about the tasks that can be done on them you have two choices you can either give me a deception check if you are attempting to lie and make it past or you can state and please actually state what you think your character would say to being asked about what they know about the workings of a ship and being quizzed on different pieces of it
4: Marcus was going to try to deceive, because he knows very little. Not, not a whole lot, just a little.
0: Alice will turn to the boy, and his cloaked self with a little bit of that white hair, or silvery hair, rather, poking out. He will say, I don't know anything about a ship, but... Um, and then he'll use druid craft, and a mirror will appear above his hand. And I would like to know what the weather's going to be for the next 24 hours.
1: Clear skies.
0: But I can tell you that you'll have clear skies and continue to monitor traveling conditions.
1: The midshipman, as you are saying that you know nothing about a ship, looks increasingly annoyed and and more and more as if he's about to burst out in demanding why you're wasting their time. Until you show this, and there is this look of horror that dawns on his face as he slaps your hand, breaking the mirror. You will not use magic on this ship. Thank God, doom we are not out in deeper waters. The vengeance of the sea will not allow it. Do not use magic again. Go below deck.
0: Alice will wave his hands up and... Uh... Look to see what Marcus is going to do. I was trying to deceive the crew about my knowledge,
4: and I rolled a sixteen.
1: You have done actually quite well. Out of all the people here, uh you have been set up as a backup leader. In case the leader for the work group that you are being assigned to gets hurt. Oh
2: good lord. We're all dying the dangerous game was
1: played. It is a short while later that midshipman Ferreira appears below deck beside Marcus and Nikos Aristeas and a few other colonists who had stayed up on deck. Before they appear those of you that were down below excluding Alice what were you thinking about? Or what were you talking about for a brief period of time?
3: And I would probably be speculating about the types of work that we might do, but very ineffectively, because she really knows as little about ships as she could manage to learn. But that will change, because now she has that book from Caligos Manor about sailing that she's going to read.
5: Oh, yeah, that's true. I think Sylvie would have just been like, so it's... It's one bell and then we... How long? I think he said a lot of words, but I don't know that I really got many of them.
2: The nah, you can just follow most of the people. Seems like standard a way to keep track of time through a rhythm.
3: What was that about dogs?
5: I don't know. Small dogs? You're right though, Kalina. I'm sure everybody else remembers or will have figured it out.
2: It's okay. You can. I'm sure me or Marcus will get it, get the rhythm down, and you can just follow us. I'm kind of glad we got assigned to the same group.
3: Oh, me too. Me too. That's a huge relief. Guess that means the warden didn't assign the groups. You know, she never would have wanted anybody to be happy, so... Definitely would have split us up on purpose.
2: Eh, not sure how I feel about the captain, but she definitely seems... Well, what's the word to use? Over... Is it, oh, no, that's the wrong word.
3: Enthusiastic?
2: Happy about this? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, they came back once. Uh, that's just lucky. <laughs> she actually thinks she can come back again.
5: We'll be fine, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, we better hope she can.
2: Well, at least they sound like they won't treat us like complete garbage. <laughs> at least if the first mates from anything to consider. He seems kind of respectable.
3: Yeah, if he's telling the truth, then it sounds like as long as we work
5: hard, we'll be fine. And obviously, we never cause any trouble, so that won't be a problem.
1: As Sylvie invites Doom, the door opens. Midshipman Ferreira, alongside Midshipman Giorgio, appear. They have a few other colonists that had stayed up on deck with them behind them, including Nico Saristeas and Marcus. Midshipman Ferreira divides the port watch work detail to which your group belongs up into teams of 10 to 13 individuals, setting a leader for each group. You're happy to find that your group is not split up, though Sylvie may not be as happy to find out that Nicosarasteus has been placed as the lead, with Marcus as a backup. You are led back up into the harsh light of day, the Dauntless moving further out over the Christelm Sea and angling towards the edge of the mist wall. The midshipman assigns crewman Tannis, a mean looking halfling with a wicked scar across their left eye down to their chin, to show you the ropes. Crewman Tannis grins at your sorry group as the midshipman leaves you to their mercy and opens their mouth. What you do here reflects not just on you, but on all of us as well. We work together, or we don't work at all. Listen to my words, learn from me, and you might get by. Ignore me, and you can be sure I'll recommend bucking out the animal pen for the remainder of your voyage. Crewman Tannis smiles, his lips pulling back to reveal a few missing teeth. Now, this way. And exactly like he promised, he shows you the ropes. Perhaps midshipman Ferreira and Tannis share a similar sense of humor. As Tannis brings you up to the bowsprit and reveals your task, for at least the first few days of this voyage. Splicing. Ropes. Over the next few hours, you begin to learn these ropes and how to properly splice them. You hear the bells sound six times, marking three hours into your first watch, and Tanis explains again what the first mate, Mr. Crope. The man with impossibly bushy eyebrows and slightly teal-blue skin explained about the bells and hours earlier. Eight bells at the end of a shift and the beginning of the next. You better be ready for your watch or you'll be PUNISHED! One bell marks the half hour into the shift two bells marks the first hour and so on and so forth up to the seventh and eighth bells before it starts once more again each watch consists of a four hour period with dog watches or two hour watches located around supper time to ensure the entire ship can be fed but before he can continue to explain he is interrupted as a boy's voice calls out over the deck, warbling between the soprano of childhood and the tenor of the teenager. Captain, Captain, I see it! The channel is beginning to open! You see young Quintus bounding across the ship towards the captain. I don't know what it means, but all the pillars, they're glowing like the lighthouse! Whatever the captain's reply was is lost to the wind. As the mist wall rises before the vessel and you look up into it. It swirls and eddies, so thick you think at times it may be solid. You wonder what secrets it holds. How was it created? What is its purpose? What is it? But you're drawn back to the Dauntless and your immediate surroundings by a command you have no frame of reference for. The Captain Bellows. Mage, bring out the serpent! At the mention of the serpent, you see crewman Tanis make the sign of the Triadrian to ward off evil. Before the captain, the first mate, Quintus, and a woman you can only assume is the ship's mage, based on the mystic symbols tattooed across the visible parts of her skin, come up onto the bowsprit. The first mate shoots Tannis a glance, and crewmate Tannis quickly has you all pull off to one side. The Dauntless's mage begins to chant. The wood of the bowsprit ripples and buckles, peeling itself back to reveal a long chest, larger than even the tallest person on Murstwall, bound in chains. It shakes and rattles, rocking back and forth. Crew members draw the chest up out of its secret compartment before the wood neatly knits itself back together. The captain withdraws a key from within the folds of her clothing. She inserts it into a large padlock on the chains, and they begin to unravel before she draws a second key and unlocks the chest. As she does, she jumps aback, the top of the chest flinging open, and the stench of stale seawater, the stench of fish, boils up out of it as a horror from the depths uncoils before your very eyes. It is long, with scales of blackish blue along its entire body, ridged dorsal fins tipped with luminescent orbs shudder along the creature's back as it draws itself up out from the chest that imprisoned it. Two arms cover the thing's head with webbed claws before it stretches them out, its natural frills of deep Green accenting from its shoulders and elbows before it lets out a shrieking scream, one that forces you to press your hands over your ears. Yet you cannot close your eyes or pull them away from this mesmerizing creature. Its form is humanoid, or almost. Its legs are a long, aquatic, serpentine tail. And its face, it is reminiscent of a human's, but crossed with a snake or a fish. Ridges, frills, and spines, like that of a lionfish, extend from the back of its head and out from around its face. But as its shriek continues, the ship's mage makes a jerking, arcane gesture and brings her hands together. The creature falls silent, its body quivering as it is paralyzed in place. The crew members around it quickly utilize the few brief moments that the creature, now silent and unmoving, is fitted with shackles and lash it to the figurehead of the bowsprit. The team of crew that does this, many continually making the sign of the Triadrian quickly back off after it has been lashed. It is as the seventh bell is rung that you finally return to splicing ropes. Though now a somber mood hangs over all of you, and Crewman Tannis silences any questions. Each of you has been a prisoner for over six years. Now you see a creature being imprisoned here, too. What goes through your minds, though you can't talk about it?
2: Kalina's only thought is, what the hell is that thing? And how the hell that... What the hell are they doing with it?
5: Sophie's thoughts are, I mean, fairly similar. Why was there a snake-like creature locked in a box inside of the part of the ship? And why are they chaining it to the front of the ship? And this seems pretty mean.
3: Why, Why is this necessary? I think Maya's wondering... Like, it has humanoid features, so how much of it is like us, and how much of it is like an animal? And why do the crew feel the need to make the sign of the Triadrian? Is it just that it seems dangerous, or is there more to the creature? But I think given the various humanoid features that it has... Maya feels a little bit more skeptical about the captain, the first mate, the crew of the ship that have power over them. They seemed nice. They seemed like things were going to be okay. We weren't going to be prisoners and it was going to be fair. Then Maya remembers the captain speaking with the warden when we arrived on the ship and she is starting to rethink her assessment Maybe things will be better once they leave us on Atsakan. Maybe not better just yet.
4: Marcus is just shaking his head, thinking that, no, no, great. We had the haunted house, the killer blankets, the shark zombie people things. Now we got a human-looking snake that people can control, and we're on a ship.
0: Lovely. Alice will take the fact that this is a giant snake-like humanoid creature very nonchalantly, but what bothers him is that this individual or creature that is clearly different is being used for a purpose against its will. And that is something that makes him bite down in anger, actually.
1: As these thoughts tumble through your minds... Alice, as you bite down, gritting your teeth, The sound of an ethereally beautiful song fills the air, emanating from the figurehead of the dauntless. And after a few moments, you hear the captain order. Hands aloft to loose the foretop, main top, foretopmast, staysail," And the crew reply in chorus. Hands aloft to loose the foretop, main top, fore topmost staysail. Over the next few minutes, the Dauntless's main topsail, fore topsail, and fore topmast staysail are loosed. Amidst the calling of orders, signs, and countersigns. as the fore topmast staysail fills with wind, the Dauntless banks and surges towards the mist wall. The creature now lashed the figurehead. The reason unknown to you. It sings its mournful song. As the eighth bell rings, the bowsprit of the Dauntless punctures the mist wall's poltergeist weist banks. Within moments, mist and steam consumes all. And as the world fades to white and gray, I will remind you that home is not what you have left behind. It is what you will build together on Atsakan. And with that, we'll end this session.
3: Thank you for listening to roll with adventure where we bring you this story from our imagination to your ears if you liked what you heard please subscribe for future episodes rate us where you get your podcast and visit us at www.rollwithadventure.com if you'd like to contact us you can write us at dm at rollwithadventure.com our intro and outro music is brave by arcane anthems Thanks for the components of this episode's soundscapes. Go to zapsplat.com, Purple Planet Music, and Arcane Anthems. Full credits are in the episode description.
1: You guys have numerical 12 through 16. I don't play cards. Is that like a straight or is that a flush? I know it's the wrong numbers for the cards, but...
0: I believe this would be a straight, but I'm not too good with a straight, so...
3: And I don't just mean coming back from the dead. I also mean, like, going out again. Sorry, <laughs> sorry, Cory, I paused too long. But I was like, wait, that kind of has a double meaning.
2: I was like, I think I waited long enough,
3: right? <laughs> you totally did. It's totally my fault. I'm so sorry.
1: Allie, are you typing? No, yes, sorry. Please mute yourself. This
4: campaign went from, like, you know, horror, death, Misery, prison work, two. F- five friends are on a boat.
3: <laughs>
4: One is a love struck ranger who are rogue who has commitment issues and emotional instability. <laughs> the other is naive and doesn't understand relationships.
3: <laughs>
4: and we have a watching, talking, magical beer. <laughs> Hehehehehe <laughs> <laughs>